Welcome to Classic Lutheran Preaching, C.F.W. Walther. C.F.W. Walther was a parish pastor, later professor and first president of Concordia Seminary in St. Louis, Missouri. He was also the first president of the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod. These sermons were preached from 1840 to 1870, predominantly in congregations of the St. Louis area. Unfortunately, we do not know the specific dates and locations of most of these sermons as they have been lost to time. These sermons were originally preached and published in German and translated by Donald Heck. They're available in two volumes from Concordia Publishing House, St. Louis, Missouri, cph.org. Thank you for listening. The first Sunday after Christmas, Luke 2, 33-40. The grace, friendship, and love of the newborn child, our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, be with you all and fill you with light, comfort, power, life, and joy, both now and forever. Amen. Dear friends in Christ, Throughout the past festival, all of you were urgently exhorted and invited to rejoice in the birth of your Savior. Was that necessary? Would it not have been more necessary for us dull and sinful men to have been admonished to be holy, to follow Christ in his humility, and especially imitate his holy example? Does not the thoughtless person comfort himself too soon rather than too late? Does he not rely much too easily on the grace of Christ? Was not the repeated invitation to Christmas joy, therefore, superfluous? To be sure, many think so. We seek all joys and flee all sadness. Who should not, therefore, rejoice in the Christ child who takes away all causes for sadness and brings us joy for time and eternity? Surely, we want to have God as our friend. Who should not the incarnation of God's Son, please. Does not God become our brother in him? Is he not reconciled? Does he not extend the hand of friendship? Surely, we wish that all would find comfort in the troubles of this world and the hope of eternal life in the hour of death. Who should not the appearance of the Savior of the world delight? With him, the only comfort and hope has arisen for all men. Finally, without a doubt, we wish that all would be saved and have as easy and enjoyable a way to heaven as possible. Who should not be pleased at the arrival of the Savior? He has made the way to heaven easy and enjoyable. God himself could find a no more beautiful, gentle way for us poor, sinful, weak men. Would not a person's offense at the incarnation of God be more amazing than the fact that God became a man? Is it not easier to believe in God's great love to men than to believe that there is a person who despises this love, yes, who scorns it? Might we not suppose that even the eternal woes of hell itself would be turned into cries of joy if suddenly in the midst of its darkness the message resounded, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. Hear that, all of you. For you spirits of hell, there is born this day a Savior, a Redeemer and Deliverer. Though it appears to be so unbelievable and puzzling, it still is true. 
Our hearts are by nature so profoundly corrupt and hard that even God's most ardent love does not warm it. God's love radiates in vain through heaven and earth. Our heart remains steel and stone. It would not melt if God himself did not again come to our aid. If God himself did not take away our natural offense and, through his grace, work true delight in our hearts. With God's assistance, I will now speak at length on how this takes place. Luke two, thirty-three to 40 And his father and mother marveled at what was said about him. And Simeon blessed them and said to Mary his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel, and for a sign that is opposed, and a sword will pierce through your own soul also. So the thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. And there was a prophetess, Anna, the daughter of Phanuel of the tribe of Asher. She was advanced in years, having lived with her husband seven years from when she was a virgin, and then as a widow until she was eighty-four. She did not depart from the temple, worshiping with fasting and prayer night and day. And coming up at that very hour, she began to give thanks to God and speak of him to all who were waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. And when they had performed everything according to the law of the Lord, they returned into Galilee, to their own town of Nazareth. And the child grew and became strong, filled with wisdom, and the favor of God was upon him. So far our text. In the gospel just read, we find the little child Jesus in the temple. Mary went there after the expiration of her six-week period to bring her firstborn to the Lord as the law directed. When she did that, old Simeon came, took the child up in his arms, and confessed that God had revealed to him that this child would be the Savior of all nations. That is why we read in the beginning of our text, and his father and his mother marveled at what was said about him. However, the most important thing is how the old man predicted that men would receive Christ. He said to Mary, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel, and for a sign that is opposed, and a sword will pierce through your own soul also, so that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. Hence, ponder with me, Christ, an offense to man. One, by nature all men take offense at Christ, and two, by God's grace, one can be freed of it. Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel, and for a sign that is opposed. Old Father Simeon predicts that this is how men will receive Christ. He says, many in Israel. Not to show that only the Israelites will feel that way. He really wants to say, that if this shall be his fate, even among his elect people, how much more elsewhere. And so it is. Not only did Christ offend most as he lay as a poor naked child in the manger, he is today, after the whole world has seen his glory still, a sign that is opposed. Many appear to have the noblest attitude, as long as Christ is not preached. But as soon as Christ is preached, Simeon's dictum is fulfilled in many. In Christ himself, the thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. The more the truth about Christ is preached, the more he becomes a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. 
to preach Christ and to stir up the world against oneself is one and the same. No sooner does the preaching of Christ spread, than opposition arises from all sides. With horror, the proud, wise human reason hears this preaching. All hearts rise against this unbelievable doctrine. All the wise of the world are united to refute this foolish gospel and suppress it. The kings of the earth take counsel to banish from their states those religions that appear dangerous. To whom men call the most holy, upright, and pious, they are the very ones who declare that this teaching about Christ is the most dangerous and pernicious of all which is being preached. However, we dare not suppose that only gross unbelievers and scoffers oppose Christ. Oh, no. Let us descend into our own heart. Even we who joyfully heard the message of the newborn Christ child will hear a voice that constantly and clearly opposes Christ. Tell me, when you heard that the true God and creator of heaven and earth was a little child in Bethlehem, when you were shown that God's love is so infinite and incomprehensible that even the angels cannot grasp it but become dumb with wonder, tell me, did you not hear the voice saying in your heart, Is this really true? Is it really possible that God would stoop so low as to offer his most precious possession, his only begotten Son, for despicable sinners? Is he really, from eternity, so anxious and concerned about the salvation of fallen creatures? May it not be said of many, that when they have heard the message of the angel and song of the heavenly host, they often said in themselves, as did Nicodemus, How can these things be? Has not the thought arisen in many a heart? Is not not this only a dream that comforts us today and compels us to wonder at God, whose love is so unending? Is it not really a dream that holds no truth and disappears with our life like a fog? Who of us has felt absolutely no such tidal waves of doubt during the Christmas season? Certainly only a very few perhaps hardly a soul. And in how many could not this doubt have subdued the heart so completely that it could not rejoice in the child of their salvation? See, the practical proof in our own hearts of the truth of Simeon's prediction, Christ is appointed for a sign that is opposed. Why has God given men such a Savior and prescribed such a way to salvation, which is so offensive to our reason, Why does not God preach a gospel which every man, especially the worldly wise and prudent, would find agreeable? Why did God let his dear Son, of all people, come in a form and with a teaching that offends everyone? Why has God set Christ as a sign that every man shall speak against? The reason does not lie, let us say, in a secret counsel of God by which he does not want the salvation of all men but the damnation of many. God also has not done this to make the return to heaven more difficult or to conceal the mystery of grace, especially from the wise and prudent. No, this is the reason. This is the only way in which we can be renewed to the image of God and be saved. Had God wanted to give the world the kind of a Savior and gospel it likes, he would have had to send them an earthly Messiah just like the one the Jewish nation once expected and still does. 
God would have had to send the wise a great philosopher, not a poor child in a manger. Gold and silver to the greedy, good eating and drinking to the pleasure-loving, honor and glory to the proud. In short, God would have had to reveal to the world the kind of gospel that would have flattered its fleshly senses, pride, and arrogance. Yes, that would be the very Savior and gospel which the world would want and which no natural heart would oppose. But just how would that have helped us sinners? We would have been alienated only the more, fallen only deeper into sin, and become only the more unfit for eternal heavenly blessedness. If we were to be helped at all, God would have to send us a Savior who offends our natural, natural heart. In short, the kind of a Savior He is and no other. Bear in mind, our natural pride in reason and virtue, our innate trust in our own imagined wisdom and righteousness, and our earthly, fleshly disposition, that is our fall from God. That is the ruin that shuts us out from God and His blessed communion as long as we remain in it. The true Savior must, therefore, be of the kind that, if we accept Him, all our false wisdom, all our false righteousness, all our earthly, fleshly disposition must be destroyed. Do not be surprised, my dear hearers, if even you perceive that your reason, heart, and mind oppose the preaching of the Christmas gospel. Rather remember that if your corrupt heart liked the gospel, it could not save you. Just that which is bitter for your flesh, becomes a healing remedy for your soul. The very opposition of your heart shows that it is not human but divine, that it is not arisen in the heart of a sinner, but in the heart of God. Consequently, this verdict applies also to the gospel. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, I chose you out of the world. Therefore, the world hates you. John fifteen nineteen. But let us proceed to hear secondly how through God's grace one can be freed from his natural offense at Christ. My friends, if this is to take place, two things especially must be worked in us. First, we must confess our resentment toward Christ, then be filled with dissatisfaction with ourselves. Many suppose that they already rejoice in Christ. That is the chief reason why Christ has come in vain for them, even for some Christians. Ah, how many there are who diligently read God's word, diligently and gladly hear the gospel preaching, and attentively listen when, during the holy Christmas season, the joyful story of the birth of Jesus Christ is explained. They praise the preaching of Christ and think that they do not need this exhortation. They think, who shouldn't rejoice in Christ? However, in thinking that way, their heart is not like the heart of Simeon or Anna. It still clings to the earth. Their greatest concern is the temporal. Their greatest joy is only that what they enjoy on earth. And they still have sins that they love and cherish, and from which they cannot free themselves. Jesus has not yet become their one and all. His grace is not the treasure that they joyfully carry in their heart. His righteousness is not the one of which they boast and in which they are happy and blessed. Oh, how you deceive yourselves! Believe this, if Jesus does not live alone in your heart, if he is not the only wealth of your soul, 
if he is not the only sun which shines upon you, if he is not the only good in which your soul finds its rest and peace, if you would not gladly lose everything so that you could have only Jesus, if he still cannot make you happy in misfortune, joyful in tribulation, content in poverty, and willing even to die and leave this world with its goods and joys as soon as possible, you have not yet found your true joy in Christ. He still offends you. And is it your resentment toward Christ that you must, above all, confess? If true joy in him should enter into your heart? Moreover, one must also be filled with dissatisfaction with oneself. If a person is satisfied with himself, if he does not confess that he is a deeply fallen sinner, if he does not feel the trouble of his soul, if he is not earnestly concerned about his salvation, if he has no gnawing hunger and thirst after grace and righteousness in which he can stand before God, if he does not wait day and night, as old Anna, for the comfort in Israel, if he has no fear of God's judgment, if he still thinks quite a lot of himself, if he thinks that he is pious, that God certainly will accept him, then one vainly utters high praise about Christ's grace and friendliness, vainly pictures God's love even in its boundless greatness, vainly urges the mercy of his Savior. On such a heart, the sweet gospel is only wasted. They find no true joy in Christ. Christ gives joy to those who have not yet perceived the misery of their souls without him, as little as a well-spread table delights the sated. The most wonderful painting, the blind. The most beautiful harmonies, the deaf. But if he is grieved over his sinfulness, the gospel is the dew of heaven which falls upon a parched, withering land, the pardon for one groaning in prison, a rescue ship for him who hangs on a cliff in the middle of the sea, the opening of the doors of heaven, to him who struggles with death. You who do not find such dissatisfaction with yourself, do not be amazed if the past holiday, holiday passed over your heads without a trace. Your heart was locked. Christ could not enter in. Tell me, do you want to lock yourselves out completely? Do you want to end this year without Jesus? Oh, take my advice. Only God can unlock your heart through his word. Hence, look first of all in the mirror of the divine law. Ponder its demands and threats, and compare your heart and life with it. At the same time, turn to God with heartfelt sighs. Beg Him to open the deep spiritual intent of the law. Picture most vividly the misery of your souls to yourselves, and thus awaken in yourself true hunger and thirst after grace. Oh, how gladly God will hear you. Soon your heart will be so full of grief that you will reproach and condemn yourself for having gone on so long without really and truly knowing Jesus. But do not remain only with the law. That is the letter that kills. If you are to rejoice in Christ, you must, after you have looked into the law, see God's wrath, become frightened, Quickly take the gospel mirror into your hand. Look into that, and there in faith see the comforting picture of the Savior of all nations, and therefore also your Savior. You will have a far different attitude toward him. 
True joy in him will enter your hearts. As Simeon took the Savior in his arms, so you will take him up in the arms of faith. If at first the Savior was a stone of stumbling, who caused your fall, and a sign, whom you in the depths of your hearts opposed, despise the confession of your mouth. He will, on the other hand, become a rock in whom you will rise from your fall. As the old prophet Anna, it will also be your desire to serve Christ day and night, and you will find in your Savior a rest, a peace, a joy, which the whole world with its treasures could never have given you. And finally, when your death comes, you will fall asleep in sweet peace and will awaken happy and blessed in God's bosom. God, through Jesus Christ, help us all reach this goal. Amen. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be and abide with you all. Amen. You've been listening to Classic Lutheran Preaching, C.F.W. Walther. These sermons are available in two volumes as a part of Walther's Works, Concordia Publishing House, St. Louis, Missouri, cph.org. We thank you for tuning in, and we pray that God's Word has and will continue to be a great blessing in your life.